And uh, Psalm 86 in our Bibles, as you saw in the video, we are, and I've mentioned here before, 1040 North, and the story of 1040 North kind of continues. Uh, in the video, you saw the, um, the, the piece about the, the, uh, the Ethiopians in Vancouver who are helping and have supplied buildings and land and other things to help with the church there. As the Lord would have it, uh, the Ethiopian missionaries, uh, the lady, the wife, is uh, from our church in Arizona. And so we're thankful for that and what they're doing there. And, and uh, there's another lady now from Canada who had immigrated some 30 years ago to uh, Canada from Ethiopia. She's retired. She is now looking at the possibility of moving back to help with that, uh, that missionary effort in Ethiopia. And so we're just asking the Lord to kind of reproduce that over and over and over and over again as, uh, as we have great opportunity to win people in Canada, to win them in a, usually, usually in the English language. A lot of times if they came from a, a, an African nation that's French speaking, they'll end up in Quebec. But uh, to reach them and then to see them get involved in missions back in their homeland and not only there but in the far north as well. So pray with us about that if you would. We've got a busy schedule and we're thankful that the Lord has kind of filled up our schedule for conferences and missions conferences and starting. You've got your missions conference. We'll be in a number of them uh, from stretching from Alabama to Ottawa to Montreal to Pennsylvania and South Carolina and some places in between as well, I think. And so pray for us if you would. Psalm 86 in our Bibles this evening, Psalm 86. And we're going to look at just one verse and really just one phrase from one verse. But I'll read all of Psalm 86 and verse 11. And I want us to notice really the first phrase, but uh, uh, we'll look at the, the whole of the verse. I see three things in Psalm 86 and verse 11 uh, that if we had the time, we would look at all three uh, phrases of the verse, but we'll look at really just the first this evening. Psalm 86, verse 11, notice what the Word of God says, if you would please. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I see here a submitted will. I will walk in thy truth, a sincere will. Unite my heart to fear thy name, a settled will. But we want to look at that first phrase tonight. Let's pray together first and, and uh, move right along this evening. Father, thank you uh, for this day and for the privilege to be in your house this evening. And uh, Lord, to be here at Harvest is always a, a privilege for my family and I. And we're thankful uh, for this ministry. And uh, Lord, uh, for Pastor Schott and his family. And we ask your richest blessings upon them. Bless Pastor as he's away and traveling. I trust that all is well with his Father, Lord, and, and that the uh, uh, procedure he's undergoing 
uh, Lord, that you'll use that in the healing process in his life. Bless our time in the word tonight. Bless those who are downstairs with the young people. And uh, Lord, we are thankful for uh, what's happening even downstairs as we meet together here. Now, Lord, help us to, uh, Lord, just kind of settle in and, and uh, Lord, to uh, set our minds upon the word of God and to be yielded to the ministry of the Spirit of God as he ministers to us the word as it is preached this evening. Speak to every heart, work in every life, be honored and glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. And I want to look at that first verse tonight, or the first phrase of that verse, where I see a submitted will. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Uh, years ago now, it seems strange to me almost to say years ago now, but it actually was almost, well, it was two decades ago or so uh, that uh, uh, the Lord was calling us and we were preparing to go to Quebec, Canada and start uh, missions work there. And, and one of the things that I knew as part of going to Quebec, Canada as a missionary was that I was going to have to learn the French language. And so we looked at some language schools and I took some counsel and took some advice and everything that came back to me over and over and over again was, if you want to learn the language well, if you want to learn to speak French and be able to communicate in French, write French and read French and do all that a missionary needs to do in a foreign language, then there's really only one teacher in all of Quebec that you should consider having as your teacher. And that, uh, that person was Marguerite Pauly. Uh, she and her husband are BIMI missionaries, been serving now the Lord literally, I think, longer than I have been alive. Uh, they served in, in French-speaking Africa. And Mrs. Pauly and her husband are two very brilliant individuals. Mrs. Pauly, I think, probably with no slight to Dr. Pauly, he would probably say the same thing, is even more brilliant than her husband. When they went to uh, France to learn language, the French language, to go to French-speaking Africa... They discovered that she was so skilled and God had so talented her in, the, in language skills that they pulled her out of language school, put her in the University of France and gave her her teaching certificates to teach the French language. And so she kind of knows what she's doing when it comes to the French language. And um, I was told that if you want to learn the French language, go to Mrs. Polly. But I was also told by just about everybody who said that, there's something else you need to know about Mrs. Polly. I would summarize it this way. She was a Marine drill sergeant in her previous life. I mean to tell you that she was one tough lady. And I kind of knew that going into it. I knew that she was going to be a great teacher, but I knew that she was going to be tough as well. And remember, I was just kind of coming out of working in maximum security prisons. I was used to giving orders, not taking orders. And I heard all this news about Mrs. Pauly and how tough she could be. I spoke to male missionaries, men who serve on foreign fields, who said, she made me cry in class. I watched as she made people cry in class. Well, I met Mrs. Pauly before I ever went to class, and I thought it would be wise for me to kind of set the record straight from the beginning. And so I met her in her home, in her kitchen. 
And I kind of just pulled her aside and I said, Mrs. Polly, I, I plan to attend language school and I've heard the stories about how tough you can be and heard you can be, you know, a little bit difficult. I said, I just want you to know that from the beginning, I'll be running that show. You'll not be making me cry. You'll not be calling the shots. I'm going to attend your school, but I will be the one who's in charge. I look back at that day and realize that was the day I started to dig my own grave with Mrs. Polly. I know that you know me, and so I know that it's hard for you to imagine that I could be difficult in class. But we got to Canada and began language school. And as soon as language school started, it, it was strange to me. It really was. It, it, it was like Mrs. Polly forgot all about that conversation that we had when I told her I was going to be in charge. So in kind of subtle ways, during the first couple weeks of class, I tried to remind her, you're the teacher, but I'm going to run the show. I'm going to do this my way. My wife would tell you that she and the other missionary that was in, were in the class with us would literally watch the storm clouds brew. And they knew that there was going to be a tumultuous storm in class. And they would literally set their books up in front of their faces, sink down in their seats as Mrs. Polly and I would go head to head and battle about who was going to be in charge. I would say this, Mrs. Polly is by far the best teacher I have ever sat under. She has an unmatched ability to be able to instill in you the language or the thing, the subject that she is teaching. And I wanted to learn from her, but I wanted to do it my way. I was not at all interested in doing it her way. And I remember it finally, it finally came to a head one day when she used to make us read first thing in the morning. Very first thing in the morning, she'd have us open up these French books and she would have us read. And she was in the habit of stopping you every single time you pronounce something incorrectly. You are never allowed to make any mispronunciations in class at any time without being corrected. And one day I had had enough. And she corrected me. And she would always correct you with an imitation of you. And as she corrected me, I stopped and I looked at her and I said, you know, I believe I'm saying it wrong, but I'm not saying it as wrong as you're saying it. She got up and left the class that day. I never saw her come back. I thought, good, I got the afternoon off. Went home. Didn't really think too much about it. Went back to school the next day. Opened up my book to start reading. Funny thing happened. I was reading and reading and reading, and she never corrected me. Now, I knew I was saying things wrong, but she never corrected me. So I looked at her and I said, are we going to have class today or aren't we? And she said, well, I don't think I can be your teacher. And I said, well, that's too bad. I'd like you to be my teacher. She said, no, you, you don't want to learn from me. And I said, no, I, I do. And that day we came to an understanding, long story short, 
that if I was going to be the student and she was going to be the teacher, she was going to be in charge. It was her class. She was going to call the shots. She was going to tell us how it was going to be done, when it was going to be done. She was going to exaggerate all the things I said wrong, and if I didn't like it, too bad. I don't know if she was exaggerating or not. To my ear, she always was. But I know this. I had a, an idea about wanting to learn that wasn't very realistic. And we come to Psalm 86 and verse number 11, and we find David, who makes this great statement to the Lord. Teach me thy way, O Lord. It's David who wants the Lord to teach him to walk in his paths, to be in his will. And as I thought about what David says there, and I think about David's life, and I think about the scriptures, and I think about my own experience, and really my spirit of rebellion against my teacher, there's three things I want us to consider about what David says. And I, I, I think they're summarized in this one statement, but there's three ways that, or three things I want us to see that will bring us to that place. And what I see is that when David said, Lord, teach me thy way, O Lord, I see a submitted will. I did not have a submitted will going into French language school. I eventually got there. Class might have been easier for me and for everybody else in the class if I had started that way. But there's three things that are necessary for you and I to actually say to somebody, and especially to the Lord, teach me thy way, O Lord, and have that true submitted spirit that I see in David as it's written here in Psalm 86 and verse number 11. And so I see in this that David remained submitted and sensitive to the leading of God through his entire life. He is an individual who comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, teach me. And if you think about that statement, when you say to somebody, I want you to be my teacher, you are by default saying, I'm going to submit myself to your authority because you know more about this than I do. And we're placing ourselves under the leadership of the teacher. We place our trust and our confidence in the teacher. And simply put, for the student-teacher relationship to work effectively, the student needs to remain submitted to the will of the teacher. But the truth is, all you have to do is go to any high school class today or have homeschooled your children or sat in my French language class to find out that a lot of students never learn to be submitted to the teacher. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of Christians will say to God, teach me thy will, but will never submit themselves to God's will. How do we get there? Because by nature, you and I are not submissive beings. True that some are more submissive than others, but by our very nature, we are not submissive beings. Since Adam and Eve, it's been clear that we are not submissive beings. We don't like to have to follow instructions all the time. Let's take a look and see how David got to this place where he is submitted to the will of God. Three things I see here, and we'll move through them rather quickly this evening. Number one, if you're going to come to that place like David and say with all sincerity, Lord, teach me thy will. 
Number one, you're gonna have to have an honest assessment of yourself. An honest assessment of yourself. You're gonna have to have an honest assessment of the teacher as well. In this, place, in this case, God. Think of who is saying this. This is David, the apple of God's eye, a man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's the slayer of giants and he's the leader of mighty men. He is God's earthly choice to lead his nation, Israel. Uh, this is the great warrior of God who was willing to risk everything for the cause of showing the world that God is God. This is the writer of the vast majority of the Psalms. This is David, whom we read about in the Old Testament. In fact, you read more about David in the Old Testament than any other personage at all. More of the Old Testament scriptures are dedicated to telling us about the life of David than any other person in the Old Testament. Now, I know that David is a type of Christ, and ultimately we see Jesus Christ in him, but this is that David who is the, in the lineage of Jesus Christ. This is David whose throne is going to continue under the millennial reign of Jesus Christ in the future. And in the context, it's important for you and I to recognize that when David write Psalm 86 and verse number 11, the best that we can tell, he has been the king of Israel for some 30 years. 30 years. So by this time, David has been walking literally a lifetime with God. For 30 years, he's been the king. He's well versed in his Bible by this time. He had years of ministry experience under his belt. If David were alive today, every Bible college in the land would want to give him an honorary doctorate just to attach their name to David. He'd be on the highlighted speaker's tour list everywhere. Every church would want to have him in. Crowds would gather to hear him preach. And when you and I take a look at David's life, we... we see this man and we kind of stand in awe of him. Though he was not perfect, he had such a zeal and a love for the Lord and God so mightily used him that when we look at him, we kind of say, I could never be like David. He's this great hero of the faith. But when David looked at David and David looked in the mirror and he looked at his own life, he made an honest assessment of himself. And he said, I've not arrived. I know that because in verse number one of Psalm 86, this is what he says. Bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me. Watch what he says. For I am poor and needy. We look at David and say, man, this is somebody who has arrived. This is David, the mighty warrior, the slayer of giants. David says, I'm poor and needy. It's an honest assessment of himself. David did not see himself being the past of being the need to be taught, to be led through his lifetime. By the way, a lot of people will say, how come God kept using David after all the, the terrible mistakes he made? And he did commit some really heinous sins. I think one of the reasons was that David always kept a teachable spirit. He was when confronted with the word of God, would confess his sin and would maintain this teachable spirit. David didn't look at himself and say, I'm the king. I've got nothing more to learn. Nobody can teach me a thing. 
I've got so much more to learn. I'm poor and I'm needy, Lord. Teach me thy way. You know, we live in a world where most everybody believes they know everything. We said in announcement time, 18-year-olds are convinced that they know more about the world than 48 or 58-year-olds. We've all gone through that. We've all suffered that disease. You know, in Arizona, we used to tell our young people in our church, and we considered you a young person if you were under 30. We used to tell them you're not going to actually attain adulthood until you're at least 30 years old. Because from about, you know, teenage years all the way through to the time you're 30, you think you've got everything figured out. At about age 30, you start figuring out how much you don't have figured out. When you get to be about 40, you start figuring out, oh, I don't have almost anything figured out. And I know now that by the time you hit 50, you figure out, I don't have anything figured out. But we have a lot of people who get to that place in their Christian walk where they have nothing left to learn. Nothing left for them to learn. It's displayed sometimes in an arrogant attitude. Sometimes it's displayed in an absence for any desire for spiritual growth. And because beliefs dictate behavior, it's not an act. It's what they really believe. A lot of times we actually believe. I don't have anything left to learn. I've had too many conversations with people who have said to me, listen, I have read my Bible through from cover to cover. I've read from Genesis to Revelation. I've read the whole thing. And then they'll come out with some statement that is so unbiblical it'll make your head spin. And you say, but the Bible says, and they say, yeah, yeah, I know, but. And you realize that they don't have a submitted spirit. You realize that they think they've got it all figured out. You realize that they think they know everything. That they aren't like David. Lord, I'm poor and needy. I need you to teach me. And if you and I are going to come to that submitted spirit, we're going to have to come to that place where with an honest assessment of ourselves, we say, Lord... I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the stamina. I don't have the wherewithal. The only thing I can do without you, Lord, is fail. Jesus did say without him I could do nothing. Lord, I, I can't do it. We live in the age that says if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. I don't know about you, but there's this thing that people say. It's just, I know it's one of those, it's a pet peeve of mine. It irks me to no end. People say it's just a catchphrase. It's just something people say. But have you ever met somebody? There are people who say this that don't say it all the time. But have you ever met somebody who says on a regular basis, you're having a conversation with them, and they keep the conversation flowing this way by this phrase. I know, I know, I know. And you know that they don't know. You know that they don't have any clue what you're talking about. But I know, I know, I know. People say, 
Ah, it's just something people say. It's just part of our language. Just keeps the conversation moving. I say that Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. I know. I know. I know. I have a hard time picturing David having a conversation where everything he says is, I know, I know, I know. John Hyatt, back in the late 1700s, said this. He said, there is no point on which the world is more dark than of its own ignorance. Very often, especially when it comes to spiritual matters, I've learned that when you're speaking with somebody about spiritual things, very often they say, I know, I know, I know, because they really just want you to shut up and they don't want to know. They really don't want to hear. An honest assessment of self says, I am poor and needy. Lord, teach me thy way. An honest assessment says, only thou art great, God, and dost wondrous things. Thou art God alone. And so the first step to a submitted will is an honest assessment. I don't know everything. I need a teacher. And I need to learn to submit myself to the teacher. That leads us to the next logical step. And they go hand in hand, but they are not the same. You move from an honest assessment to a need for a humble attitude. A humble attitude. They do go hand in hand this way. Truly, no one is humble without a right assessment of self. But we should not necessarily consider or assume that somebody is automatically humble because they have a right assessment of self. Many people know in private that they're poor and needy. Many have a firm grip in private that they're poor and needy and need somebody to teach them. But pride leads them to never have a humble spirit where they will actually submit. I knew I needed a French language teacher. I knew I couldn't learn it alone. But I wasn't going to submit. So I had an honest assessment. I knew I needed to learn French, and I was not going to learn that on my own. I needed a teacher. I had no humble attitude. They should go together, but they don't. There are those who will say, I am poor and needy, but in pride, in pride and maybe in privacy, they'll say, but I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Maybe the words would never fall from their lips, but the attitude of their heart is displayed in their daily actions, in their resistance to the teacher, in this case, the Lord. And every time you and I look at the Bible and say, I know that's what it says, but we may have an honest assessment of ourselves because we're reading and say, I need this, but we have no humble attitude that says, I'm actually going to submit to it. I'm actually going to follow it. I'm actually going to do what it says. Every time we hear something preached or taught and the Holy Spirit of God says, you need this. And our pride swells up and says, no, I don't. 
We display that while we may have an honest attitude, I think, I think most of us who make a habit of, of coming to midweek service have an honest assessment of our Christian walk. I need to get to church so I can be fed in midweek service. That doesn't mean I show up with a humble attitude. I've made an honest assessment and I've gotten here, but that doesn't mean I show up with a humble attitude. Humility, what I want us to understand, is different than this assessment, this honest assessment. Because, you see, an honest assessment is just really knowledge that we possess. But a humble attitude is something that possesses us. Let me see if you can understand it better if we illustrate it by the Lord Jesus Christ. He had an humble attitude. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Listen, Jesus Christ made an honest assessment that the world was dying on its way to hell. And that he was the sole savior and he needed to come and seek and save that which was lost. But it was a humble attitude that caused him to become obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Do you see that if God, the Son, would have fallen short from and never moved from an honest assessment of where you and I are without Him and never was moved with this humble attitude, you and I would still be lost. It was a humble attitude that brought the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross, that drove Him to that point of submission and obedience. What I want us to understand is... That you can have an honest assessment of yourself all day long, but that's just so much knowledge. It's important, and it'll bring you to the place you need to be with a humble attitude, but you need to make that next step. And then thirdly, notice this. If you're going to be like David, and even after 30 years of being king and walking with the Lord most of your life now, you're going to come to him and say, Lord, teach me thy way. Teach me thy way, O Lord. There's going to need to be this honest assessment of self. There's going to need to be an honest assessment of who God is. There's going to need to be a humble attitude. But number three, there has to be a holy ambition. A holy ambition. And I see that David had this holy ambition in the word teach in Psalm 86 and verse number 11. If you're in the habit of your Bible, or of marking your Bible rather, if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, I would encourage you to highlight or circle or put a star by, underline this word teach. It's an important word. It's a very unique word. And what I want us to recognize is as we look at this word teach is that it's different from the way you and I a lot of times approach somebody when we say to them, hey, I need you to help me. I need some advice. I need some teaching. A lot of times what we do when we go to somebody and say, hey, I need you to teach me, we're really just saying, I need some advice. 
I need some guidance, some guidance, some advice. I don't want all your advice. I don't want all your guidance. I just want some of it. And a lot of times people will come and say, what do you think about this? And they're really just using you as a sounding board. And what people are really saying when they say, teach me, is they're saying, hey, give me some information. I'll think about it, and I'll make my decision from there. This is what many do with the will of God. If I had a penny for just one penny for every time somebody said to me, if God would just show me his will, I would do it. I'd be a rich man, physically, monetarily speaking. God says, I'm not showing you my will until you submit to my will. Submit in advance and then I'll show you my will. So that's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. By the way, that means it's unreasonable not to do it. Which is your reasonable service, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word prove means discern, to know, to understand. So God says, you come to me, you surrender, and then I will show you, and you will be able to discern my will. We say, God, show me your will, and I'll decide whether I want to submit. Now, we don't say I'll decide whether, but that's really what we're doing. God says, you've got it backwards. And David's word teach here that the Holy Spirit of God inspired him to write and use shows us that he came not only with an honest assessment and a humble attitude, but he came with a holy ambition that said, Lord, I don't just want some advice. I don't want just some guidance. I don't want you to just kind of be in charge. This word teach comes from a Hebrew word that very often in our Bible is translated and speaks of the shooting of an arrow or the casting of a stone. I studied that word for a long time because at, at the beginning, I really had a hard time understanding what David was saying to us. He says, teach, but he's saying, Lord, like an arrow, shoot me. Like a throne, uh, like a stone, cast me. But I see in this David's humble, or holy rather, ambition. David's not saying to God, just give me some advice and I'll consider it. Give me some guidance and I'll see if it fits my schedule. David is literally coming to God and he says, God, I've made an honest assessment. Without you, I can't do a thing. I'm poor and I'm needy. I've got a humble attitude. I'm submitting to your will. And here's the proof of my humble attitude. Like I'm an arrow in your quiver. Pull me out, Lord. Put me in the bow. Draw the string back. And wherever you see fit, you shoot me. And you put me there. Right where you know I need to be. Like a stone cast from a sling. And I think David knew a little bit about slinging stones. Lord, you throw me where I need to be. Lord, I've taken a look at all this and I'm kind of sick of doing it my way. I'm kind of I'm tired of messing it all up. And Lord, I'd rather just be where you put me. Not my way anymore, Lord, but your way. 
let it be no more of me, but all of you. Not a mixture of my way and your way. What does a stone have to say to the one who is slinging it where it's going to fall? What does the arrow have to say to the archer where it will be shot? Not my way and your way, not a mixture of them, but your way only, God. Only your way. There is no more holy ambition than to completely and totally submit yourselves to the Lord in such a way that you come to him and say, God, by the way, I think that's the definition, the biblical definition of a living sacrifice. Here I am. Whatever you want. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Don't just tell me, but place me. Put me there, Lord. Like an arrow, shoot me from your bow. Now, a lot of people look at that statement and look at what David said, and maybe it's starting to click with you, and you're starting to say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. What if the Lord shoots me somewhere I don't want to go? What if the Lord slings me like a stone and sends me somewhere I'm not going to be happy? First of all, I would just say this. Jesus said, I come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. Do you really think he's on purpose going to make your life miserable if you surrender your will to his? That's something Satan wants you to buy. But that's not what God is selling. <laughs> It makes no biblical sense to conclude that if I surrender my life to God, he's going to therefore make me miserable. So you say, but what if he shoots me in the wrong place? You know, if it were me who said to you, listen, I'm going to place you like a stone I'm going to sling you or like an arrow I'll shoot you from my bow, you might worry. When I was a young boy, I don't know, probably nine or ten years old, I had a bow and arrow. Man, I loved it. I did. It wasn't a compound bow or anything fancy. It was just an old wooden bow, some old wooden arrows with metal tips. Some of them had feathers and some of them had part feathers and some of them didn't have it at all. But boy, you could have some fun. And one of the things I would like to do as a young boy, was take my bow and I'd sling an arrow and I would just shoot it straight up and watch that thing go. Just let it fly. Kind of watch. Watch as the wind would carry it and it would drop somewhere. Go look for that arrow. I used to love to do that. One day I was in my backyard doing that and separating my backyard from the houses that were behind us were just a little bit of trees. And then there were another group of houses. And there was a man there in that house behind where I lived who had a, I think, a 1976 Grand Prix. And man, he loved it. It was his baby. Had one of those soft vinyl tops. Yeah, one day I'm out there with my bow and he's out there waxing his baby, cleaning it. I take that arrow and I just pull it back with all my might and let it fly. 
And there it goes going down, and I'm watching. Right in to the roof of that car. I, I, I mean, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I realized he was going to be mad. I started booking. Here he comes walking up, arrow in hand. I looked at that thing. I said, where'd you get that? <laughs> Let's just say that the rest of the conversation wasn't so pleasant. If I were the one who were going to shoot you from the bow, you might worry where you would land. But this is God. He's the archer. Last time I checked, he hits the bullseye every time. Every single time. He's never missed the mark. Not a single time. This is the one who gave his life for you and I. This is the one whose aim is perfect. And I think as you think on that, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18 might take on new meaning. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. God has put me in some places that I don't always understand why I'm there. Something that always happens, helps me is if I'm in his will and I've let him shoot me to that place, sling me like a stone to that place, something I can come back to is, I may not understand why I'm here, but this pleases my Father. And so I can be pleased with that. And so tonight, let me encourage you. Stop trying to figure it out and do it your way. Because you're going to end up like my arrow in a 76 Grand Prix in a vinyl top, somewhere you ought not be. Or you could just say, Lord, wherever you want, wherever you want me to be, you put me there. But you and I will never do it until we make an honest assessment of ourselves. I am poor and I am needy. We take the next step and say, Lord, with a humble attitude, here's my holy ambition. You put me wherever you want me. Wherever you want me to be, put me there because that will please you and what pleases you pleases me. Our Father, we, we come tonight and we thank you for your word. We thank you for David and uh, just a great example from his life of how this man stayed so teachable throughout his life. Bless now as we'll just uh, contemplate these things and maybe go home and think on them some more. And as we close the service now and our brother comes to lead us in a song, your will and way be accomplished in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.